0: CHAPTER 12 OF BRITISH HIGHWAYS AND BYWAYS FROM A Motor Car BY THOMAS DOWLER MURPHY THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN RECORDING BY CHRISTINE BLASHFORD CHAPTER 12 IN OLD YORKSHIRE York is by far the largest of the English shires, a widely diversified country ranging from fertile farmland to broken hills and waste moorland, while its river valleys and considerable coastline present greatly varied but always picturesque scenery, the poet describes the charms of yorkshire as yielding variety without end sweet interchange of hill and valley river wood and plain nor did we find this description at all inapt as we drove over its excellent roads during the fine july weather but the yorkshire country is doubly interesting for if the landscape is of surpassing beauty the cities the villages the castles and abbeys and the fields where some of the fiercest battles in britain have been fought have intertwined their associations with every hill and valley not only the size of the shire but its position midway between london and the scottish border and extending almost from coast to coast made it a bulwark as it were against the incursions of the scots and their numerous sympathisers in the extreme north of england no part of england is more thickly strewn with attractions for the american tourist and in no other section do conditions for motor travel average better from london to york the capital city of the shire runs the great north road undoubtedly the finest highway in all britain it is laid out on a liberal scale magnificently surfaced and bordered much of the way by wide and beautifully kept lawns and at times skirted with majestic trees We saw a facsimile of a broadside poster issued about a century ago announcing that the new lightning coach service installed on this road between London and York would carry passengers the distance of 188 miles in the astonishingly short space of four days. This coach, of course, travelled by relays and at what was then considered breakneck speed. Over this same highway, it would now be an easy feat for a powerful car to cover the distance in three or four hours the great north road was originally constructed by the romans to maintain the quickest possible communication between london and eboricum as york was styled during the roman occupation the limitation of our time had become such that we could but feel that our tour through yorkshire must be of the most superficial kind not less than two weeks of motoring might well be spent in the county and every day be full of genuine enjoyment the main roads are among the best in England and afford access to most of the important points. We learned, however, that there is much of interest to be reached only from byways, but that these may lead over steep and even dangerous hills, and are often in not much better condition than our American roads. We left Durham about noon, following a rather indirect route to Darlington. From thence, through Hawthorne-bordered byways, we came to Richmond, one of the quaintest and most representative of the old Yorkshire towns we happened here on market day and the town was crowded with farmers from the surrounding country here we saw many types of the yorkshire man famed for his shrewdness and fondness for what we would call dickering much of the buying and selling in english towns is done on market day livestock produce farm implements and almost every kind of merchandise are sold at auction in the public market place if a farmer wants to dispose of a horse or to buy a mowing machine he avails himself of this auction and the services of a professional auctioneer Such an individual was busily playing his vocation in front of the King's Head Hotel, and the roars of laughter from the farmers, which greeted his sallies as he cried his wares, certainly seemed to indicate that the charge that Englishmen cannot appreciate humour, at least of a certain kind, is a base slander. As Richmond is the centre of one of the best farming districts in Yorkshire, its market day was no doubt a typical one. Richmond Castle at one time was one of the most formidable and strongly situated of the northern fortresses, it stands on an almost perpendicular rock rising one hundred feet above the river swale but with the exception of the norman keep the ruins are scanty indeed there is enough of the enclosing walls to give some idea of the extent of the original castle which covered five acres its magnificent position commanding the whole of the surrounding country the keep is now used as a military storehouse the soldier guard in charge was very courteous and relieved us the necessity of securing a pass from the commandant as was required by a notice at the castle entrance He conducted us to the top of the Great Tower, from which we were favoured with one of the finest views in central England, and one that is almost unobstructed in every direction. Unfortunately, a blue mist obscured much of the landscape, but the guard told us that on clear days York Minster, more than forty miles away, could easily be seen. Near at hand, nestling in the valley of the Swale, are the ivy-covered ruins of Easeby Abbey, while still nearer, on the hillside, the Great Tower of Greyfriars Church, is all that remains of another once-extensive monastery in no way can one get a more adequate idea of the park-like beauty of the english landscape than to view it from such point of vantage as the keep of richmond castle richmond church is an imposing structure standing near the castle and has recently been restored as nearly as possible to its ancient state an odd feature of the church is the little shop built in the base of the tower where a tobacconist now plies his trade From the castle tower, looking down the luxuriant valley, we noticed at no great distance, half hidden by the trees, the outlines of a ruined church, the Easeby Abbey which I have just mentioned as one of the numerous Yorkshire ruins. It is but a few furlongs off the road by which we left Richmond, and the byway we entered dropped down a sharp hill to the pleasant spot on the riverside where the abbey stands. The location is a rather secluded one, and the painstaking care noticeable about so many ruins is lacking. It is surrounded by trees, and a large elm growing in the very midst of the walls and arches flung a network of sun and shade over the crumbling stones. The murmur of the nearby swale and the notes of the English thrushes filled the air with soft melody. Amid such surroundings we hardly heard the old custodian as he pointed out the different apartments, and told us the story of the palmy days of the abbey, and of its final doom at the relentless hands of Henry Eighth. Nearby is a tiny church which no doubt had served the people of the neighbourhood as a place of worship since the abbey fell into ruin. The day which had so far been fine soon began to turn cold, one of those sudden and disagreeable changes that come in England and Scotland in the very midst of summer time, an experience that happens so often that one cannot wonder at Byron's complaint of the English winter, closing in July to recommence in August. At no time in the summer were we able to dispense for any length of time with heavy wraps and robes while on the road from richmond we hastened away over a fine and nearly straight road to ripon whose chief attraction is its cathedral speaking of cathedrals again i might remark that our tour took us to every one of these with one exception in england and scotland about thirty in all and the exception beverley minster is but newly created and relatively of lesser importance Ripon is one of the smaller cathedrals, and of less importance in historical associations. It occupies a magnificent site, crowning a hill rising in the very centre of the town, and from a distance gives the impression of being larger than it really is. It presents a somewhat unfinished aspect with its three low, square-topped towers, once surmounted by great wooden spires which became unsafe and were taken down, never to be replaced. These must have added wonderfully to the dignity and proper proportion of the church just outside ripon lies fountains abbey undoubtedly the most striking and best preserved ecclesiastical ruin in england it is on the estate of the marquis of ripon adjoining the town and this nobleman takes great pride in the preservation of the abbey the great park which also surrounds his residence is thrown open every day and one has full liberty to go about it at pleasure it is a popular resort and on the day of our visit the number of people passing through the gate exceeded five hundred The gatekeeper assured us that a thousand visitors on a single day was not an uncommon occurrence. The abbey stands in a wooded valley on the margin of a charming little river, and underneath and around the ruin is a lawn whose green loveliness is such as can be found in England alone. There is no room in this record for the description of such a well-known place or for its story. The one feature which impressed us most, and which is one of the finest specimens of Norman architecture in England, is the great solarium, where the monks stored their wine in the good old days. The vaulted roof of this vast apartment, several hundred feet in length, is in perfect condition and shows how substantially the structure must have been built. Fountains Abbey shared the fate of its contemporaries at the hand of Henry VIII, who drove the monks from its shelter, confiscating their property and revenues. It was growing late when we left Ripon for York, but the road was perfect and we had no trouble in covering the twenty miles or more in about an hour. We were soon made comfortable at the Station Hotel in York, one of the oldest and most interesting of the larger cities." the following day being sunday we availed ourselves of the opportunity of attending services at the minster the splendid music of the great organ was enough to atone for the long dreary chant of the litany and the glory of the ancient windows breaking the gloom of the church with a thousand shafts of softened light was in itself an inspiration more than any sermon at least to us to whom these things had the charm of the unusual york minster with the exception of st paul's in london is the largest cathedral in england and contests with canterbury for first place in ecclesiastical importance its greatest glory is its windows which are by far the finest of any in england many of them date back to the thirteenth and fourteenth centuries and when one contemplates their subdued beauty it is easy to understand why stained glass making is now reckoned one of the lost arts these windows escaped numerous vicissitudes which imperiled the cathedral among them the disastrous fires which nearly destroyed it on two occasions within the last century the most remarkable of them all is the five sisters at the end of the nave a group of five slender softly toned windows of imposing height the numerous monuments scattered throughout the church are of little interest to the american visitor we were surprised at the small audiences which we found at the cathedrals where we attended services a mere corner is large enough to care for the congregations the vast body of the church being seldom used except on state occasions though york is a city of seventy-five thousand population i think there were not more than four or five hundred people in attendance though the day was exceptionally fine There are numerous places within easy reach of York which one should not miss. A sixty-mile trip during three or four hours of the afternoon gave us the opportunity of seeing two abbey ruins, Helmsley Castle and Lawrence Stearns Cottage at Coxwold. Our route led over a series of steep hills almost due north to Helmsley, a town with unbroken traditions from the time of the Conqueror. Its ancient castle surrendered to Fairfax with the agreement that it be absolutely demolished and that no garrison hereafter be kept by either party so well was this provision carried out that only a ragged fragment remains of the once impregnable fortress which has an added interest from its connection with scott's story the fortunes of nigel two miles from helmsley is Rival abbey situated in a deep secluded valley and the narrow byway leading to the ruin was so steep and rough that we left the car and walked down the hill a small village nestles in the valley a quiet out-of-the-way little place whose thatched cottages were surrounded by a riot of old-fashioned flowers and their walls dashed with the rich color of the bloom laden rose-vines back of the village in lonely grandeur stands the abbey still imposing despite decay and neglect just in front of it is the cottage of the old custodian who seemed considerably troubled by our application to visit the ruins he said that the place was not open on sunday and gave us to understand that he had conscientious scruples against admitting anyone on that day the hint of a fee overcame his scruples to such an extent that he intimated that the gates were not locked anyway and if we desired to go through them he did not know of anything that would prevent us We wandered about in the shadows of the high but crumbling walls, whose extent gave a strong impression of the original glory of the place, and one many well believed the statement that, at the time of the dissolution, Rival was one of the largest as well as richest of the English abbeys. The old keeper was awaiting us at the gateway, and his conscientious scruples were again awakened when we asked him for a few postcard pictures. He amiably intimated his own willingness to accommodate us, but said he was afraid that the old woman, his wife, wouldn't allow it, but he would find out. He returned after a short interview in the cottage and said that there were some pictures on a table in the front room, and if we would go in and select what we wanted and leave the money for them, it would be all right. On our return from Helmsley, we noticed a byway leading across the moorland with a signboard pointing the way to Coxwold. We were reminded that in this out-of-the-way village, Lawrence Stern, the father of the English novel, had lived many years and that his cottage and church might still be seen. A narrow road led sharply from the beautiful Yorkshire farmlands, through which we had been travelling, its fields almost ready for the harvest, into a lonely moor almost as brown and bare as our own western sagebrush country it was on this unfrequented road that we encountered the most dangerous hill we passed over during our trip and the road descending it was a reminder of some of the worst in our native country they called it the bank and the story of its terrors to motorists told us by a helmsley villager was in no wise an exaggeration it illustrates the risk often attending a digression into by-roads not listed in the road book for england is a country of many hilly sections I had read only a few days before of the wreck of a large car in Derbyshire, where the driver lost control of his machine on a gradient of one in three. The car dashed over the embankment, demolishing many yards of stone wall, and coming to rest in a valley hundreds of feet beneath, and this was only one of several similar cases. Fortunately we had only the descent to make, the bank dropped off the edge of the moorland into a lovely and fertile valley, where quite unexpectedly we came upon Byland's Abbey, the rival of Rivo, but far more fallen into decay.' it stood alone in the midst of the wide valley no caretaker hindered our steps to its precincts and no effort had been made to prop its crumbling walls or to stay the green ruin creeping over it the fragment of its great eastern window still standing was its most imposing feature and showed that it had been a church of no mean architectural pretension the locality it would seem was well supplied with abbeys for ryval is less than ten miles away but we learned that bylands was founded by monks from the former brotherhood and also from Furness abbey in lancashire In the good old days it seems to have been a common thing when the monks became dissatisfied with the establishment to which they were attached for the dissenters to start a rival abbey just over the way. Coxwold is a sleepy village undisturbed by modern progress, its thatched cottages straggling up the crooked street that leads to the hilltop, crowned by the hoary church whose tall, massive octagonal tower dominates the surrounding country. It seems out of all proportion to the poverty-stricken, ragged-looking little village on the hillside, but this is not at all an uncommon impression one will have of the churches in small English towns. Across the road from the church is the old-time vicarage, reposing in the shade of towering elms, and we found no difficulty whatever in gaining admission to Shandy Hall, as it is now called. We were shown the little room not more than nine feet square where Sterne, when vicar, wrote his greatest book, Tristram Shandy the kitchen is still in its original condition with its rough beamed ceiling and huge fireplace like most english cottages the walls were covered with climbing roses and creepers and there was the usual flower garden in the rear the tenants were evidently used to visitors and though they refused any gratuity our attention was called to a box near the door which was labelled for the benefit of wesleyan missions two or three miles through the byways after leaving Coxwold, brought us into the main road leading into york this seemed such an ideal place for a police trap that we travelled at a very moderate speed meeting numerous motorists on the way the day had been a magnificent one enabling us to see the yorkshire country at its best it had been delightfully cool and clear and lovelier views than we had seen from many of the upland roads would be hard to imagine the fields of yellow grain nearly ready for harvesting richly contrasted with the prevailing bright green of the hills and valleys Altogether, it was a day among a thousand, and in no possible way could one have enjoyed it so greatly as from the motor-car, which dashed along, slowed up, or stopped altogether as the varied scenery happened to especially please us. York abounds in historic relics, odd corners, and interesting places. The city was surrounded by a strong wall built originally by Edward I, and one may follow it throughout its entire course of more than two miles. It is not nearly so complete as the famous Chester Wall, but it encloses a larger area, It shows to even a greater extent the careful work of the restorer, as do the numerous gate towers, or bars, which one meets in following the wall. The best exterior views of the Minster may be had from vantage points on this wall, and a leisurely tour of its entire length is well worth while. The best preserved of the gate towers is Micklegate Bar, from which, in the War of the Roses, the head of the Duke of York was exhibited to dismay his adherents. There were originally forty of these towers, of which several still exist, Aside from its world-famous Minster, York teems with objects and places of curious and archaeological interest. There are many fine old churches and much medieval architecture. In a public park, fragments still remain of St Mary's Abbey, a once magnificent establishment destroyed during the Parliamentary Wars, but it must be said to the everlasting credit of the Parliamentarians that their commanders spared no effort to protect the Minster, which accounts largely for its excellent preservation. The Commander-in-Chief, General Fairfax, was a native of Yorkshire, and no doubt had a kindly feeling for the Great Cathedral, which led him to exert his influence against its spoliation. Such buildings can stand several fires without much damage, since there is little to burn except the roof, and the Cathedral suffered most severely at the hands of the various contending factions into which they fell during the Civil Wars. The quaintest of old-time York streets is the Shambles, a narrow lane paved with cobblestones and only wide enough to permit the passing of one vehicle at a time, It is lined on either side with queer, half-timbered houses, and in one or two places these have sagged to such an extent that their tops are not more than two or three feet apart. In fact, it is said that neighbours in two adjoining buildings may shake hands across the street. The Shambles no doubt took its name from the unattractive row of butcher shops, which still occupy most of the small storerooms on either side. Hardly less picturesque than the Shambles is the Petergate, and no more typical bits of old-time England may be found anywhere than these two ancient lanes glimpses of the cathedral towers through the rows of odd buildings is a favourite theme with the artists aside from its antiquity its old-world streets and historic buildings are quite up to the best of the english cities it is an important trading and manufacturing point though the prophecy of the old saw lincoln was london is york shall be the greatest city of the three seems hardly likely to be realised end of chapter twelve